Last week we did this and everybody was a little bit rowdy. So we decided to flash the lights at you today. I'm going to open us with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Our Father, uh, just thank you for this, this, this moment. Thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this, this, uh, this time to sing your praises together, this time to, to hear your word spoken over us. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit is at work over these next few minutes and um, just be, be at work in each one of our hearts. Say what you want to have said to each one of us. Have each ear hear what you would have it hear. And may your Holy Spirit just speak to each one of us, Lord, that we would become a people who would glorify you in all that we do. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so this week is uh, week two of a four-week series that we're calling All Things New. Uh, and it's a series that's meant to help us kind of look ahead together. Uh, meant to help us align with one another, uh, one another towards like a singular vision as a church. And if you missed last week, week one of the series, we began uh, the first week with a desire, kind of talking about the desire to let the whole gospel confront us in our own cynicism, in our own worry, in our own disbelief. And it was kind of a call to be expectant instead, a call to to embrace uh, a hopefulness that's actually rooted in God's proven steadfast love, his proven faithfulness, and his promised restoration. And then this week, we are looking forward together. We're looking towards what we might hope for in this world, what we might hope for in this city, and what we might hope for even in this church. So I know a lot of you in this room probably have high school degrees, maybe some, I mean, high school diplomas, high school, uh, one, of the, one of those things, high school diploma. Uh, college degrees, some of you have master's degrees, some of you have doctorates, some of you are currently working on some of those, even currently, I know. And here's what I know about school, and especially college work, and that is that it can be hard, right? <laughs> now, some people really enjoy that kind of work. Um, I'm not one of those. I'm one of the other type of people. The other type of people are like me, and they don't really enjoy that kind of work. I'm not that guy. I mean, I'm not not smart. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I'm not a scholar. I'm not really into the academic thing, and, and schoolwork does not excite me, right? But regardless of whether you like schoolwork, whether you like going to school, or whether you don't, the point is it's hard. College can be hard. School can be hard. And it isn't just hard because you have to learn something new that's kind of hard to grasp. That's not even always the case. It's actually hard, I think, because it's long and it's rigorous, right? There's like a ton of books to read, lectures to process, papers to write, exams to take, and finals to pass. And, and all that translates into countless hours of studying and missing out on something else you'd like to be doing. And it probably means you've lost a good bit of sleep sometimes. It's hard. It can be taxing on us mentally and emotionally, physically, spiritually, not to mention financially, right, and costs. So why do we do it? Why do you go to school? Why do you go to college? Why do you work on that master's? Why do you work on that doctorate? Why do we do it? Why spend all that time and energy and money on getting a piece of paper that you get to hang on your wall? Well, the answer is probably very slightly from person to person. I realize that. But for everybody, there's something promised us in the end, right? 
Maybe it's a job. Right? Maybe you want to get that piece of paper so that you get to do a job that you're going to love and that where you believe you're going to get to contribute something to the world. Or maybe it's about a job, but the job really for you means a particular kind of income, a particular amount of money, or maybe money means being able to live a particular lifestyle you want to live. Maybe it's just proving to yourself that you could do it. Whatever the case is, there's, there's something at the end of it that you believe makes all the time and the money and the energy worth it. And that future hope is worth whatever discipline and whatever sacrifice is needed in the present. There's this popular verse in, in Proverbs, it's Proverbs 29, 18, and it says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Where there's no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. And that's true, right? Like if, if there wasn't a vision for what that diploma or what that degree was going to mean for you, if there wasn't like a particular hope, whatever it is for you or for whatever, if you didn't have a particular hope and a particular vision, then you wouldn't have made it through college or high school or whatever that thing is you're working on. You couldn't have spent your time on a paper instead of sleeping. You couldn't have said no to hanging out with your friends and going out and doing stuff over studying for that exam. And eventually, with no vision, with no hope, you cast off restraint, and you would have gone out. You would have spent the time and the money and the energy in other ways. But when we've got our hope set on a future that we believe is certain, realizing that future hope is worth whatever discipline, whatever sacrifice is needed in the present. So, if we flip all the way to the end of the Bible, if we go to the last pages of this narrative and this whole drama of redemption that we're in, it's, it's beautiful what we find there in the last pages in Revelation. You know, there's like this, uh, there's this enduring promise that Jesus is coming back that Christians cling to, right? And in the book of Revelation, we see a vision of what that's going to look like. And we read a little bit of this last week. You can turn to Revelation chapter 21. And if we take a look at Revelation 21, verses 2 through 3, we're going to see what it says about this eventual, eventual total restoration, total recreation. It says this, Revelation 21, 2 through 3. You flip to the last page and you flip back to the first. It says, And I saw the holy city a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The first thing that I want you to see with me in these verses is that God is preparing a city with him and we are with him where we are in right relationship with him once and for all he's our God and we are his people and if you continue to read through that passage the rest of the passage lets us in on what that kind of reality looks like what it looks like when God dwells with his people and his people dwell with him and everybody's in perfect and right relationship we already know from earlier in the book of Revelation if you've read that before, we know that this is a city made up of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We already know that it's a diverse people who First Peter uh, 2.10 says was once not a people, but is now God's people. And in this city where God dwells with his people and they dwell with him in perfect and right relationship, Revelation says 
There's no more tears. There's no more death. There's no mourning. The old passes away. The new has come. And in this picture of this city where God dwells with his people and they dwell with him in perfect and right relationship, verse 6 of that same chapter says that the thirsty will freely drink from the springs of the waters of life. It goes on to say that there will be no cowardly acts there, no faithlessness, nothing detestable, that means nothing unholy, no murder, no sexual immorality, no sorcery, no idolatry, no lying. All that stuff will be thrown out. It'll all be gone. It'll all be done with once and for all. So that means for us, there's no more temptation or pulling at us to worship anything or anyone else but our God who is with us, our Father who calls us sons and daughters of God. See, it's a city that's made up of one big family. The city that is to come is a city that's made up of one big family, a good and a loving family that doesn't hurt one another, but edifies one another and values one another rightly as image bearers of our Father. To me, it's it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of what we want. Of what we want. And it's peaceful to like close my eyes and imagine and believe that that's possible. A place where justice reigns. A place where mercy flows and people walk with the Lord and they walk with each other in humility, glorifying God in all things. That is imaging the truth about who God is through everything and everybody, making the real Jesus known with all of our beings. Now, if we go from the end of the Bible and we flip from the end of the Bible all the way back to the beginning, back to the beginning of this whole story in the book of Genesis chapter 1, for that one, you could go to the beginning of the book of Genesis. It's probably there. Um, if you flip back to the end of the Bible, I mean, if you flip from the end of the Bible back to the beginning of the Bible, back to the beginning of this whole story that God has written and that we exist in, we're in, we're in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 28, 28. And at this point, God has created the earth. He's created everything in it. And then here he's created man and woman, and he gives them this command in the first. He says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 2, as the initial story of creation gets a little more detailed, we see that God planted a garden in Eden and he puts man there. And it's in this garden that he actually makes Eve out of Adam, right? He makes the first woman. He makes Eve, Adam's wife. And this, in this garden, this is where they, they were to begin to carry out God's command to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to have dominion over it. The beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the whole story starts in a garden. This is where God declared his creation to exist. And in that garden, he declared it was right, and it was perfect. And in that garden, he walked and he talked with Adam and Eve, as we see in the scriptures. He was with them there. Something that I find really beautiful, and I'm hoping for us to see this morning, is kind of twofold. One is, when Christ returns, 
he would dwell with us and we would dwell with him. Much the same way that he dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden. And I also want us to see that when Christ comes and when he restores and he recreates, he doesn't just undo everything. He doesn't take an eraser and take us all the way back to the garden where everything was right and perfect. That's not what he does. Instead, he brings a city where we will dwell together. Here's what I want you to see. God placed us in a garden in the beginning with the command to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over it, to be fruitful and to multiply, to make a big family of people who would live in right relationship with each other and with their God, right? And when God restores, when Jesus comes back, when he recreates everything and he makes all things new, that's what will have come to fruition. I call it the garden city. A city that grows up in the garden as people fill the earth and tend it and exercise dominion over it in such a way as to bear the image of God rightly in all of creation, to make the real Jesus known on the whole earth. This is a city that ultimately glorifies God and that satisfies our deep need. This is the city that was waiting to visit heaven. That's what the Bible has for us. That's the city we're waiting for. This is the future hope that we have that ought to make whatever discipline, whatever sacrifice that's required in the present totally worth it because we know we're in that city. But it's not quite the same as the degree, is it? Right? Because we don't earn our way into this future. We don't earn our way into this future reality. We're freely invited in. And so we wait. But I think there's different kinds of waiting, too. Right? Claire and I started dating in 1997 when we were both in high school. We didn't get married until 2004. So we waited almost five years to get married. And that felt like an eternity to wait. Five years doesn't feel the same now as it did then. Five years took a long, very long time. But in this waiting, like, we didn't just wait passively. Right? We spent time together. We used to write each other these long notes about, our day and about how much we loved each other, right? They were really mushy. I know. It's hard to believe. I was a pretty sweet guy, to be honest. I don't know. We didn't wait passively. We wrote each other notes. We got to know each other. We, we, we got engaged. We had to save up money to pay for our wedding, and so we did that. We planned the wedding. We reserved the location. We picked out our flowers. We picked out our invitations. We picked out the food. And then we got Claire's apartment ready to be our first home. And unlike the discipline and sacrifice that it might take to get a degree, we did all of these things with joy, right, and excitement, knowing that the day was certainly coming and that everything that we were doing was preparing the way for that. It was a time of excitement and expectancy and hope for us. And back in this verse in Revelation 21-2, back at the end of the Bible, this wedding language is used in describing the new city. It says, Revelation 21, 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now that's appropriate language because it regards the church who is called to be the bridegroom. It's also appropriate because this wedding language draws us into the, I think, the right kind of waiting for this future reality. As Richard Mao writes, he writes this, he says, 
while we are to be awaiting people, we are not to be passive in our lives of anticipation. The biblical visions of the future are given to us so that we may have the kind of hope that issues forth into lives of active disobedience vis-a-vis contemporary culture. Or to put it another way, the biblical visions of the future are given to us so that we may have the kind of hope that issues forth into lives that are actively participating in transforming and redeeming our contemporary culture by bringing the gospel to bear. And as we do so, I think we rightly wait while we prepare for the ultimate wedding day with joy and with anticipation. See, we ought to be a people unable to wait silently. Like we ought to be so ready for this future city of Revelation, like so familiar with it, so looking forward to it, to what it could be and what it should be and what it will be, that we are unable or we are We're so familiar with it that we are able to immediately recognize how our present city and our present culture and our present place doesn't look like that future promise. Like we ought to be able to see that immediately because we are so preoccupied with knowing what is to come as to know how this current place will not be filled and subdued and perverted for the Lord's glory. We should be intensely aware of how things, how those things that we have filled the earth with and subdued the earth, how we've done that corruptly and perversely, how those things stand between God and the people around us, leaving them separated from their God. We should be aware of that, and we should be a people who are actively waiting and preparing for that day by running to fill the gap and bringing the gospel forward where it needs to be. Listen to this charge from the writer of Hebrews, chapter 13. Verse 11 and 12. It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the temple. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge Jesus. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is an encouragement, and it's a call to action. It's a call to begin living the eternal life in our present place. Like we seek a city that is to come, not this one that will not last. We seek the reconciled and restored reality that is to come, not this one that's passing away. And in our assured and like confident hope of that future reality, of that future city, like Jesus who suffered for the joy that was set before him, we too can offer up lives of sacrifice and praise to our God with joy and with anticipation for what is to come. Lives that make the real Jesus known to the people in our present city by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and by doing good works and sharing what we have. Question. 
your future with Christ so real that you know you can afford to share and leave everything in this present reality for the gospel? Like knowing that you have a very rich future that's not contingent on how much you gain or how much you save while we're here. Is your future with Christ so real that you know that you can afford to use it all? See, we at uh, at Redemptive Church ought to be not passively waiting, but actively waiting for the eternal reality to come by preparing the way when it does come. Saturating this place with the good news in word and deed so that it almost begins to look like a mini prototype of that big heavenly garden city that's coming. You know Augusta's nickname, the garden city. Most of you are probably aware of that, given that you know the title. That's just how I always announce, that's what I always think of. Augusta's nickname, the Garden City. You might see it on a sign somewhere when you come in through a corridor, you know, wh- wherever you come into the city at. You might see it. There's a bunch of businesses and organizations that are called Garden City, this and that. I don't know why we're called that. One thing I looked up on the Internet said that we were called that because back in the day we had a whole lot of private gardens in our I had always assumed it was because of like all the azaleas and the trees and the greenery around the city. doesn't really matter. I've always wondered, what would it look like if Christians came to Texas? What it would it look like if Christians in this city brought a bigger and broader meaning to that nickname? What if we redeemed it? Like what if Augusta was saturated with the good news of Jesus? pointing every woman, every man, every child to the hope of the gospel repeatedly and at every turn. And I'm not talking about like passing out tracts all over the sidewalk. I'm talking about like entering into right relationship with our neighbor, right? Doing good, doing justice, loving kindness, sharing what we have and proclaiming the good news as we walk in humility. What if we made the real Jesus known by being honest about our failures, by loving the way that Jesus loves, by serving the city for the good of all, and inviting everybody into the family of God. What would the garden city look like in Texas? Can you imagine a city whose sense of unity and community would give us and others a glimpse of that heavenly garden city to come? Not because we have cool buildings or stores or attractions or whatever like that. Like, I mean, all that can be awesome and good and redemptive too, but not because of that. Because we become a people who have been unified by the blood of Jesus and freed to give of ourselves to others. What if we were a city where that was true, where Jesus had done a work here and we were unified by his blood and freed to give ourselves to each other? Imagine a city where people with special needs were a valued part of the community. Imagine a city where Black Lives Matter were whitewashed. Imagine a city that's hospitable to the foreigner and to the sojourner. A city that takes care of the environment with joy. A city that cultivates the arts to make our city a place steeped in expressions of beauty. A city where people who are hungry are readily fed. Where those who are sick are taken care of of regardless of their social status or their financial abilities? What if we were a city where sex just doesn't sell like it used to? What if we were a city where prisoners had friends, where the killing of the unborn 
comes to a halt as a single mother's head reels to shore and her widowed and orphaned is riding into port. Imagine a city where people are living together and striving together here and now to make the real Jesus known to one another and to all that they come in contact with. Praise the Lord. That's too big, right? That's too big of a thought. Because I'm not even just talking about the people in this room. I'm talking about the whole world. It's too big. But let us not be consumed or overwhelmed by the size of the task. And let us not become cynical and lower our hopes and expectations. I mean, if we could accomplish this alone, then we wouldn't need God. Right? Instead, let us be encouraged Knowing that though it seems like an insurmountable task for God to do this, even in our little city, an insurmountable task to see the, even this small place redeemed and restored, that's not what God has promised. God has promised to redeem and restore the world. And he always comes through. What's impossible on our own is possible Remember the Great Commission. When what Jesus said at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says this, it says, And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, back, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you I am with you always. In the Garden of Eden, God dwelled with his people in perfect and right relationship. And because of the fall, we were cast out of his presence. Maybe you remember the Christmas story. Because when Christ was born, they named him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Meaning that God was making a way to dwell with his people again. And he actually walked here for a while in order to make a way to reconcile us all and to restore all that was fallen. And then when he, was, when he died and he was buried and he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of the Father to go and prepare this city for us, this place for us, he didn't leave us alone. He sent his spirit to dwell in us. One day, Revelation shows us that we'll dwell with him in a way that engages all of our senses. So God is with us now. We aren't left to ourselves or our own abilities to do anything. He is with us. And by his power and by his ability, he is calling us to go to those that are outside and make the real Jesus known. calling us to let the beauty of his kingdom shine brightly through this world. Look, I want to be clear about this. We cannot bring this eternal city about by our own efforts. It's going to take a miraculous work of God to bring it to bear. Only when Christ comes back will this revelation city come, but he does promise to do so. However, if whatever God is doing to prepare that city for us 
He's not called us the way pastors do. He's called us the way he made us. He's made us ambassadors to show. We're ministers of reconciliation. He's given us the Holy Spirit, and he is with us presently. He's with us presently for the work of making the good news of Jesus known. He's with us presently for the work of announcing his kingdom, for the work of telling the world about the city that is to come, and for the work of gathering the families that will once and for all dwell with God in that heavenly garden. We must recognize the continuity between our present reality and our future reality. And we must live into our created eternal purposes here now and in Because we are called, we are invited in to bring the redemptive work of the gospel to bear in the place and time where God has put us. And we are to be about the work of Genesis 128 together. Of filling and subduing and having dominion over the earth. Creating little garden cities wherever he places us to live, work, told you last week and I hope you still have that I'm expectant and that I'm excited about what God is doing in and through this family at Redemption Church and my desire this morning is to stoke the fire in you at least a little bit this morning my desire is to let us gaze out in front of us and begin to believe that perhaps God is greater and God is bigger than we've ever dared to imagine I want to encourage us and let us know that he would love to work in us and through us to see downtown Shasta Lagos with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's that's what it's about. We have ample reason to hope. Because the Jesus who says he's coming back with a place prepared for us, the Jesus who says he's coming back for his bride, his church, The Jesus who says he's making all things new, he's come before, right? He's come before. He's already made good on his promises from the past, and he's proven himself faithful and just, and he is with us always, even now. You know what's really cool to me? That he's already been at work in and through us at Redemption Like, even if we didn't know it, or we weren't aware of it, or we weren't prepared for it, he's already gone before us. He's already been at work. It's not something we got to muster up. He's doing something already. Just one really crazy, tangible thing. But just think about how God has provided for us. There's no way to explain, like, this little church being given this building by a denomination we weren't a part of, or had even barely heard of at the time, to be honest. The only way to explain that is that God was doing a work before we got here, that he was using the faithfulness of another church in our community to eventually bless us with people that we needed, with a a parent organization that we needed, and with the space that we needed in order to shape us into a people who would make him known in downtown Shasta. Not only that, I mean, if you've been around for, for any time at all, God has provided in big ways in just this year. God's provided people. God's provided finances. God provides for this church, and he's already been doing at work. You know, when we moved in, there were neighbors who didn't like the idea of a church taking over. 
I think it's easy. But most of them have become our slaves. And I've talked to people in our community, many who don't profess a belief in God at all, some who've got baggage with the church, uh, and somehow God's gone before us and he's opened the doors before we've gotten there. Many of these neighbors would love actually for us to be a place that fosters community amongst the diversity that exists in our city. This Friday, we got to host a welcoming event in advance of Refugee Week. It was a blessing. I'm just hopeful. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that God will continue to shape us into a church who makes the real Jesus known in our community. That being honest about our faith, loving the way that he loves, serving the city for the good of all, inviting everybody in to the family of God. And my intent this morning is to invite you into becoming exactly what Jesus has called you to be. I want to be explicit in case you've missed it. The vision for Redemption Church is to saturate downtown Augusta with the goodness of Jesus. We aren't looking, honestly, just for church growth or more campuses or a bigger platform in order to make any of that happen. No, like, we know at Redemption Church that even this church has often misrepresented Jesus in our community. The people out there, and likely even in here in this room, think they know who Jesus is, but they haven't seen who he really is. They don't really know how great he is. They don't really know his great love for them. And it's a tragedy. And so we want to make the real Jesus known. And that's why I keep saying that. Because we want to do that. We believe we can do that by being not just by being a people who can be honest about our failures, right? By loving the way Jesus loves, by serving the city for the good of all, and by inviting everybody in the family of God. If you want to imagine the future for Redemption Church, just don't think buildings, don't think campuses, don't think bigger and better. That's really not what we're imagining. Imagine us becoming known on our block as the party throwers because we're constantly celebrating what Christ has done and what he's going to do, and we're inviting all our neighbors to get in on the celebration with us. If you want to imagine the future of Redemption Church, imagine us becoming a people who are known for spending their time in prayer for the church and for the unchurched, so much so that people around the block are able to just drop by and ask us to pray for them and pray with them. Or maybe people in our neighborhood start to feel free to drop in on us wherever they find us in the city to talk freely because they know it's safe, because we've modeled honesty, knowing that, they, that they're loved, even if they don't accept it. That's crazy. Imagine a church with diverse people, art making and gardening and eating and cleaning up together and serving together. Imagine us being a people known in our neighborhood for openly standing firm in the word of God, but also openly loving all those around us. Imagine us being a church known as a people of repentance because they admit their failures and sacrificially making things right with each other. Imagine us being a church known for doing good even though it costs us everything. And imagine us being known as a people who hope beyond hope, and who love like nobody else they know. I want to imagine the future of Redemption Church in just that way. If this would all become real, then we should start now. And I 
think the way forward is Hebrews 13, 13 through 16. For since Jesus also suffered outside the gate when he was presented by the people through his own blood, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices reflect our Lord. We're going to move into a time of response as we do We have a few ways that we we do this. One, the band's going to come, and they're going to lead us uh, to sing praise to our God, to worship him together. Stand, sing together. You can sit and reflect wherever you are. And in this moment, I just, man, I I dare you to hope that day that this city could be a picture of that initial garden experience. And imagine this church being that church in Jesus' name. And reflect on like how God impressed that in on you personally and call you to increasingly do so all of your life for his glory. The band's going to come and sing. We're also in this time, we, we give our tithes and offerings. And there's a basket, usually on the back table, where you can give. If you're a member of Redemption Church, we encourage you to do that. Also, each week, we come and we serve. We come down these corner aisles. We'll have people serving. You can take piece of the bread and, and dip it in the wine or the juice. The bread represents the body of Christ that was given for us. The, br- the, the wine and the juice represents the blood of our Lord that was shed. And when we come and we take it, we are remembering who we have been given to. Remembering Jesus Christ, that he actually is who he says he is, that he's done what he said he would do to prove his faithfulness to you and to me. And we're proclaiming that truth to one another. Because we're a forgetful people. And we need to be reminded of God's daily so if you're a Christian, whether you're a member at Redemption Church or not, we invite you to come and take and eat. You can serve as Christ has instructed you to do. I'm going to pray for us as we close. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this church. We thank you for going before us. We thank you for how you have worked already, even though we may not be aware or prepared you are at work. You love this city. You love this world. You gave your son for it. Lord, I'm just thankful that you've uh, you gathered this people together to make us more and more like Jesus so that we could be a proclamation of the good news of that city to come to the people who are around in our neighborhoods. Lord, I pray that you would work in each and each and every one of us individually, that we would be, that we would have our hopes set high, that we would catch a glimpse of that, that future city, of that future where you're coming back to that, that place where you dwell with us and we dwell with you and we are your people and you are our God and our Father and we are your sons and daughters. Lord, make that a, make that a reality that we can see and that we can almost taste and feel and touch. Make us want it desperately so that we begin to live 
into that eternal reality, even in the present. Make us active laborers. That we would, with joy and anticipation and hope and expectancy and excitement, in this present time, spread your gospel in word and deed to our neighborhood, to our city, as we wait for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.